You're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. The very first national elections in New Zealand occurred in 1853, when there were only 5,849 registered voters. In order to be registered on that electoral roll, voters needed to be male, British subjects and property owners. In addition, they were almost exclusively Pākehā. Over time, the franchise was extended to Māori and women. Today, the current electoral roll numbers more than 3 million people. In this series, we feature presentations which cover a broad range of stories from Aotearoa New Zealand's evolving systems of governance, going all the way back to 1853. Um, our, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Jim McAloon, who is Professor in History at the School of History, Philosophy and Political Science and International Relations at University Victoria University of Wellington. He has a range of interests in the economic and social history of New Zealand and other places, including um, settler societies, colonial development, class and history, labour history, migration and 20th century political history. Jim's topic today is development of the voting systems from propertied men to universal suffrage. Thank you for thank you for coming, everyone. Uh, it's uh, it's nice to be able to to discuss this this dimension of our history, which is interesting and a little bit complex. Um, you know, we all I guess are aware that New Zealand was uh, one of the first uh, jurisdictions in the world to enact a form of universal suffrage for men and women um, pretty much on the basis of residence without a property qualification. But the uh, the story um, behind that and how we got to that point in the 1890s is quite a long one. And, and I suppose a lot of what I'll be talking about this afternoon is... Um, the context as well as the, the, the specific legislation. Right. Okay, the what I call a chronology of rights. Um, the 1852 Constitution Act, as, as Jason just said, um, men who um, met a certain property qualification were allowed to vote. And there's a, there's a range of ways in which that right to vote was extended uh, over the next 40 years, culminating in universal suffrage in 1893. Some of these topics will be looked at by other speakers in uh, successive days and in much more detail. So if I don't say much um, about the uh, development of the Māori electorates, for instance, that's not because I don't think they're important, I think they are, but it's, uh, I, I obviously don't want to preempt my, my colleagues who will be looking at that. Um, and the same goes, in fact, for, uni for universal suffrage, or as we might say, for women's suffrage in 1893. Well, I guess on, on one level, it's, if you put up a, a chronology like this, it, it, it uh, tells a story of progressive democratisation. And on one level, that, that is, is pretty true. Um, it's more complicated than that. Uh, but one thing that does emerge as I thought about this topic is that there was a commitment very widespread in New Zealand 
and uh, settler in New Zealand at least to the proposition to the idea that this is an experimental place that we are going to do things differently here um, and whereas um, in the United Kingdom universal suffrage was not um, enacted until 1930 get that 1930 within living memory it's very much on the agenda here um, from much earlier I want to begin though just to yeah, for a bit of context with the constitutional status of New Zealand during the 19th century um, because the way things worked out uh, fitted in a certain um, set of arrangements uh, again a um, simple list uh, when William Hobson uh, had the Treaty of Waitangi signed uh, by numerous rangatira and proclaimed British sovereignty over New Zealand, um, and we won't go into what the treaty actually provided, although you'll be aware that that was disputed, uh, for the first 18 months or so, New Zealand was a subordinate colony, a dependency of the Crown Colony in New South Wales. And so Hobson's title was Lieutenant Governor. In 1841, uh, New Zealand became a separate Crown Colony uh, and was a Crown Colony until 1852. And as, as that slide says, uh, government was in the hands of a governor um, appointed by, by London and answerable to London. Um, William Hobson uh, was governor until 1842. I'll put the um, photos of the governors up in a minute. Uh, but uh, Hobson and his successors chose to appoint an advisory body called a legislative council, but it was small and it only advised, it had no, uh, no power to make laws. The governor promulgated ordinances. From 1853 to 1856, New Zealand was a, uh, a colony with internal self-government, but the institutional arrangements, the relationship between Parliament, the legislature and the governor were still being worked out. I'll explain what responsible government means in a moment, but from 1856 until 1907, New Zealand was a self-governing colony where responsible government pre prevailed. 1907, as some of you will know, uh, the proclamation was made that um, made New Zealand a dominion and the formal style until 1947 was dominion of New Zealand and then in 1947 an official usage at least dominion got dropped. Now from 1907 until 1931 the status of dominion in fact was no different in reality from that of a self-governing colony. Um, there was a sense in which New Zealand was not fully independent and I haven't got that date on the slide but it was only in 1931 with the British passage of the Statute of Westminster that recognised the dominions and at that time the dominions included New Zealand, Australia, Canada, uh, Ireland or the Irish Free State, now the Republic, South Africa and Newfoundland uh, and they were all granted their independence by the Statute of Westminster. So that's a, a quick outline of the um, constitutional status. The Crown Colony period itself saw the administration of three governors, uh, Hobson, Fitzroy and Gray, um, and then Gore Brown uh, from 1855, after which Gray came back for another um, period in office. 
I don't want to go into the, um, the governor's administrations too much. Suffice to say that um, most of them ended up unfortunate in one way or another. It does seem that New Zealand was not exactly a plum job. Uh, there was a lot of agitation during the Crown Colony period, especially out of the New Zealand Company settlements, Wellington and Nelson, but also out of Auckland, which was um, a self-generating town for self-government by settlers. Um, one theme in 19th century political debate was um, chance to get a feed as well as to talk politics. Uh, advertisement here for a grand reform banquet to be held in Wellington in 1849. Um, tickets were five shillings each, so they probably excluded labourers, but nevertheless some of these meetings were particularly well attended. Um, okay, it probably meant um, self-government for white settlers of, of reasonable wealth, not always. Uh, in Nelson at this time, there was a considerable push for um, manhood suffrage, one man, one vote. And I'll come back to some of those themes in, in a little while. But there was a democratic tendency which, which held, um, to quote an American historian, that all white men were equal, but no one else was the equal of a white man. And I'd like to sort of just emphasize that because while we talk about the expansion of the right to vote, there are also always important questions about who is not allowed. And it's, it's defined not only by property and by gender, but also in some senses by, by race or ethnicity as well. But the idea of self-government, at least internally for, uh, the, for the settlers, London wasn't particularly opposed by the middle of the 19th century. There was a feeling be being, being discussed that internal self-government would bind the white settler colonies more closely to the imperial centre, would sort of you know, create some sort of imperial federation, if you like. In any case, the 1852 Constitution Act, which was passed by the London Parliament, established both a General Assembly, um, uh, Central Parliament, and also six provincial governments. And the General Assembly consisted of two chambers, as it did until 1950. The Upper House, the Legislative Council at that time, was, was members appointed for life by the Governor. And the House of Representatives um, was elected by men who held a certain amount of property, uh, as, as Jason pointed out. Now, the provincial governments, um, the provincial council in each case was elected by men who were entitled to vote for members of parliament. And there was also a superintendent of the province who was directly elected by men who had the same qualification. But one small point which sometimes became important is that while um, the property qualification meant in both parliamentary and provincial elections that men could vote in every electorate where they owned property, uh, and that was true for the provincial councils as well, uh, effectively the provincial superintendent was elected on the basis of one man, one vote, because no matter how much property you had, you only had one vote for the superintendent. So one man, one vote is an exaggeration, but plural voting did not um, exist for superintendents. So there was a, a sense in which that could be slightly more democratic. And this rather elaborate structure is set up for a settler population of some 30,000 people, which is pretty small.
It is important to note that a Māori man who owned property in European title could vote. A few of them did. Occasionally that was crucial in the result of an election. But it's also important to note that um, very quickly uh, the regulation was, was put down that Māori men could not vote on the basis of their share in customary property. And that was explicitly because um, the settler courts and the settler legislatures uh, were not intending to have significant Māori representation. I need to put it that bluntly um, because there was the view that Māori were um, not capable of taking part in political debate. So men could qualify, as Jason said, in three ways, by being freeholders, leaseholders or householders. A couple of issues emerged in the central government. One was that once the constitution was changed, things was, was granted, things changed in a rather ad hoc fashion. Um, unlike constitutions in some countries, it was always in the power of the New Zealand parliament to amend its constitution. So there was no sort of entrenchment or higher status. Um, parts of the Crown Colony system remained for a couple of years whereby the government continued to appoint senior officials and ministers. But after some pressure from the House of Representatives, um, at the end of 1854, London um, basically said that it had no, no objection to what's called responsible government. And what that meant was that then as now, so from 1856 onwards, it's always been the case that a government in New Zealand must enjoy the support of a majority of members of the House of Representatives on confidence and supply. And that's a phrase, of course, that we've been hearing again in recent years in terms of proportional representation, where no one party will have a majority. So representative government means that there are, there are parliamentary institutions. Responsible government means that the government or the ministry is responsible to uh, usually the lower house of the legislature. And I just put up there the, the variations that, that can prevail in that sort of res, um, responsible government contrasted with republics that have an executive presidency like the United States or France or South Africa. I mean, different ways of the relationship between government and legislature. How democratic was this franchise, this property qualification? It's difficult to know. Um, perhaps between half and three quarters of adult white men in New Zealand could vote in 1853. Compare that to about a fifth in the United Kingdom. Relatively democratic, not as democratic as certainly parts of the United States or indeed as some of the Australian colonies. The provincial governments were interesting beasts. Uh, one reason why they were established was the pragmatic one that the Pākehā settlements were small, dispersed and isolated from each other. Communication was difficult, uh, places were remote. But what were the provincial councils? Were they larger versions of what we'd now call a county council? Or were they smaller versions of an American state government? Was the superintendent of the province a mayor or a governor? These things were argued about, and they don't need to detain us, but sometimes the discussions got interesting. 
During the 1850s and 60s, provincial governments had responsibility for land policy, how and on what terms, what price, what uh, improvement rules uh, land would be made available to settlers, and they also ran immigration and public works. Now, one of the major developments of the 1860s that had a direct impact on the voting system in New Zealand was the gold rushes. The impact on the settler population was significant. Um, it doubled during the 1860s. And the gold miners generally combined individualism and mutual support of each other with the desire to get rich or at least comfortable. Generally, too, they had pretty firm ideas about self-government. In Victoria, um, on the goldfields in 1854 there, uh, things were run on the basis of relatively high license fees and rigorous inspection of the licenses. And lots of miners objected to what they saw as very heavy-handed policing by the Crown Colony government. Uh, civil disobedience grew, uh, with miners refusing to produce their licenses on demand, uh, some being fined or, or arrested. And in the event, a Reform League movement developed in the second half of 1854. As the authorities pushed back, tensions increased and a large number of miners armed themselves and threw up a stockade at Eureka near Ballarat in late 1854. And they raised this flag, um, sometimes known as the Southern Cross, sometimes known as the Flag of Stars, uh, which in Australia is still sometimes deployed as a symbol of republicanism or of radical working class or socialist politics. Symbols, as we've been reminded in the last couple of weeks, are never straightforward or simple, but this um, contemporary illustration shows the miners um, waving cutlasses or pitchforks or pikes and some firearms swearing allegiance to the, to the flag. Well, as I said, the miners were quickly crushed uh, with uh, several deaths, but manhood suffrage followed pretty quickly in Victoria. Now, the importance of Eureka for New Zealand, of course, is that many miners who came to New Zealand had been in Victoria, uh, a very large number of them. And the New Zealand government took warning by Eureka and from 1855 provided that there would be a more liberal system in the New Zealand goldfields, which I'm showing here on this map, um, in which anyone who wished to mine could, for the price of one pound a year, get a license known as a miner's right, which um, entitled them to prospect for gold and to stake out a claim, and more importantly for our purposes, holding a miner's right conferred the right to vote. So that's the first crack in the idea of property qualifications to vote. When large numbers of men who possessed the right to mine or possessed a miner's license were entitled for that reason to vote. And the other major change in the later 1860s, or during the 1860s, was the wars in the North Island, of course. And that led, in a way, to the creation of the four Māori seats in 1867, partly um, to perhaps provide a sop to liberal consciences, partly to recognise those iwi and hapū, those tribes who hadn't resisted the Crown, and partly perhaps to incorporate Māori on a token basis. 
Uh, by population, uh, Māori should have had something like 12 or 14 seats, uh, so they were corralled in a way. And the other thing that was important about the um, right to vote in the Māori seats was that while it was extended to all men, uh, all Māori men, uh, they did not have the secret ballot. Uh, they had to publicly declare or give the name of who they were voting for to the registrar. So by 1870, uh, there's been a significant crack in the idea of property qualifications. There was a significant democratic culture in the 1850s and 60s. There were ongoing debates about democratic rights, how wide they should be. Um, in the Nelson provincial election in 1856, for instance, one conservative Scottish sheep farmer, David Munro, who was standing for superintendent, um, was defeated and reflecting on his defeat, uh, he put it this way, would New Zealand take American or British institutions as our model? Are the people the sole source and fountain of power, or should intelligence and property be given weight? Uh, very aggrieved, he maintained that a very large number of the voters were most ignorant men who believed that uh, the thing to do was to put a working man, uh, an ordinary man, into power. The man who had beaten Munro for the position of superintendent was an old Birmingham radical Democrat called John Perry Robinson. He was a working man, uh, a skilled man, uh, a turner by trade, and you can perhaps understand why Munro was a bit peeved at having been tipped out by this yokel, um, this uneducated tradesman. Robinson in 1859 advocated not only democracy, but, but intimate democracy as well. And he talked about local self-government on the provincial scale, uh, how it made free men always to do folk right among each other. Um, his vision was of politics and social concerns being discussed widely among the people, leading to effort for the common weal, the common good. So you've got a tension there between um, what Munro is espousing, the rights of property, and what Robinson would probably have called the rights of man. And I use that term uh, deliberately because it's the title of one of the great democratic um, pamphlets of the 1790s, written by the Anglo-American radical Tom Paine, another tradesman, uh, the rights of man in which he argued explicitly for universal male suffrage, one man, one vote. So there were debates in the middle of the 19th century, and I guess I'm wanting to suggest that the extension of the right to vote to some extent was an object of struggle. It wasn't, didn't just happen. There's a lot I think that needs to yet to be researched about the influence of democratic ideas in colonial New Zealand, but I think also another key vector, another key theme 
or influencer was, of course, the great Scottish bard, Robbie Burns. Now, Burns is often sentimentalized as a country poet, a poet of homely virtues, but some of his writing was, was, was extremely radical, uh, perhaps uh, none more so than this one, A Man's a Man, which is still sung by Scottish radicals and Scottish Democrats, uh, as, for instance, when the Scottish Parliament was opened or reopened in 1999. You can find any number of performances of this online if you're interested, but um, Burns's lines here are distinctly hostile to hierarchy. Yod Berkey called a lord. Um, a prince can make a belted knight by extolling the virtue of the honest man. Burns was incredibly widely read in 19th century New Zealand, and apparently there are more statues to him across the world than any other person except for Queen Victoria. But I want to make the point, too, that even some wealthy gentlemen were Democrats. Frederick Weld was one of the richest settlers in 1850s New Zealand. He was a genuine member of the English gentry. Um, and in 1854, he attacked elitist ideas and noted the widespread political discussion um, across the place, um, farms, sheep stations, even around campfires. Uh, so for Weld, New Zealand's future was democratic. Well, the secret ballot was granted in 1870, and that had for a long time been a demand of radicals in Great Britain. In 1875, the Lodger franchise, uh, which granted um, the right to vote to men who were um, living in some stability in boarding houses or the like. And the idea behind that was that young men like clerks living in boarding houses in the towns and the villages were respectable and should be allowed to vote. So by 1876, there were different franchises, uh, different rules for freeholders, leaseholders and householders uh, in terms of 1852, for gold miners from 1855, uh, for lodgers and ratepayers from 1875, and for Māori men from 1867. So this was all complicated, and there was an argument that um, manhood suffrage would simplify it. Um, that every man should have the right to vote. Uh, and so the struggle between the rights of man and the rights of property, however, was an ongoing one because the Conservative Premier, John Hall, conceded manhood suffrage in 1879, perhaps partly in the, in the spirit of a concession to stave off more radical demands. And at the same time, he openly tried to bolster the rights of property owners by cutting the uh, qualification in half from property worth £50 to £25. So fairly blatantly that's an attempt to merge large and small property together. Um, and yet, I mean, Hall was a wealthy Canterbury sheep farmer, but another wealthy Canterbury sheep farmer called William Montgomery, opposing Hall, said that he had, Montgomery had the honour to belong to the Liberal Party, and called for the abolition of property votes, saying that no man should vote otherwise than because he is a citizen. So again, it's the rights of man versus the rights of property, and indeed the same argument 
uh, is purveyed by the feminists, by the suffragists during the 1880s, summarized, of course, by the great Kate Shepherd in 1889. In simple terms, the great democratic principle that all adult persons who are neither criminals nor lunatics have a right to a voice in government. Uh, and I won't say any more about um, the campaign for women's suffrage, or at least not very much, except to say that um, the advocates for that reform came from a variety of positions, many of them from simple democratic principle. Some, however, emphasizing women's moral purity and argued that um, giving women the vote would, would improve the moral tone. Um, and so there were debates about that, uh, which, which you'll be hearing about in another session. But manhood suffrage, even with the continuing property vote, meant a big shift. The proportion of Pākehā men with the vote went from 71% to 91% overnight. The next key reform was a decade later in 1889, when the property vote was abolished. Um, when, in fact, one man, one vote became the law. Why did that happen? Well, I think I've suggested enough that this, the, the simple idea that conservatives were opposed to the extension of the franchise or that the property, the wealthy, were opposed to the extension of the franchise doesn't hold. I think something else that was going on was that widespread feeling that New Zealand was a place where experiments could happen. Tradition counted for less. I think, too, um, many felt that the widespread belief among settlers in getting ahead, improving your position, uh, justified a democratic system. Even people often regarded as conservatives like Frederick Whitaker in Auckland supported universal male suffrage. And that raises an interesting point. What do we mean when we talk about being a conservative in colonial New Zealand? It was said at the time that no one would admit to being a conservative. Everybody wanted to be a liberal. Uh, the 1880s Prime Minister and later Chief Justice Robert Stout observed with, uh, I think with, with some um, correctness, that the most right-wing member of the New Zealand Parliament could fit in the British Liberal Party. Quite simply, New Zealand did not have a hereditary landowning aristocracy, and therefore um, the constituency for uh, entrenched reaction reactionary conservatism just wasn't there. Um, several quotes from um, various politicians in the 1850s, 60s and 70s about the importance of small-scale farming uh, and the idea that you are not going to have big landed estates lasting forever, that you are going to have small farmers emerging and that this is quite right and proper. Um, that New Zealand, the work of colonisation or European settlement is being promoted and, and, and achieved by people with small means, not big landowners, but people with little savings who work hard, save hard, and get ahead. Now that's the idea, um, how true it was is another matter, but it was the idea that justified the extension of the franchise. Um, these quotes, I guess, suggest that, that, that there was a, a widespread belief in what Keith Holyoke in the 1960s 
as National Party Prime Minister, would like to call a property-owning democracy. I think we can talk about an emerging conservative progressive division. I mean, was politics about ideology or was it about local issues, roads and bridges? Should the, the future emphasize industrial development or just agriculture? How much should big landowners be taxed? Should the state shape the economic direction or leave it to the market? Should there be a harder or softer line on Māori land and the acquisition of it? And there was a considerable degree of political ferment in, say, the 15 years before 1890. George Gray, having been governor, came out of retirement as premier in the, 18, in the late 1870s and espoused a sort of a radical populist ideology. John Hall, as I've said, was, was uh, much more conservative. His successor, Harry Atkinson, could be described as a pragmatic centrist, and as such, in 1889, was quite happy with one man, one vote. So I've tried to characterise the premiers of the 1880s uh, in this way. I don't know if it works or not, and I don't want, to, don't want to go too much further down this tangent. But I think I do want to suggest that political ideology and the right to vote do mix up in subtle ways. At the end of the 1880s, there was, there was more striking evidence of ideological change. In this fluidity, a wave of organisation of, of uh, wage earners swept the country at the end of the 1880s. There was a feeling in this decade of economic difficulty that the, uh, the utopia that they'd been promised hadn't been achieved, they were suffering the same hardships which they had in the old country, long hours, low wages and poverty. You get trade unions being formed in, in many, many trades indeed at the very end of the 1880s, and workers organising, partly to, as they said, maintain good relations but with the employers, to maintain living standards, to defend what you might call the, the social contract that New Zealand would be better, um, and indeed sometimes to advocate for more than political democracy into what we would now call economic democracy. I think the 1890 general election has been underestimated in its importance. We hear a lot about 1893 and the enactment of universal suffrage. But various liberals and some labour activists um, had coalesced around um, John Balance, who was leader of the opposition from 1887, and began to call themselves officially the Liberal Party. And Balance uh, served as Premier from 1891 to 93. The Liberal Party, as it took office at the beginning of 1891 on, on a floor vote in Parliament, combined Liberals of various degrees and a number of new members of parliament with a labour background, a number of skilled working men like William Tanner, whom I just quoted, particularly from Dunedin and Christchurch. And I think the fact that one man, one vote had prevailed in 1890 meant that it was, in hindsight at least, reasonably obvious that there would be a big shift. And Balance was, in many respects, a complete Democrat, um, at least for settlers. He was a wholehearted supporter of universal suffrage. 
He also was something of a nationalist, um, looking to a future for New Zealand and disliking the social hierarchy. Uh, his ideas were complicated. Some of them have withstood the test of time and some not. Again, however, when it came to relations with Māori, and he'd been native minister at various points in um, the years before 1890, uh, he did not depart from the, the general um, settler political consensus that Māori should be relieved of their land as fast as possible. So like all liberal heroes, he's a flawed hero. Um, but in terms of his um, approach to politics, uh, in terms of his approach to democratisation, he oversaw a degree of land reform, uh, he oversaw or initiated a degree of labour reform, and in political terms, most importantly for our purposes, institutionally, um, he oversaw some remarkable shifts. In the first place, he managed to get the legislative council transformed from lifetime appointments to seven years appointed by the government of the day. So from then on, the legislative council virtually had a built-in guaranteed government majority and its, its power to um, restrict the House of Representatives was severely diminished. Equally importantly, and in getting this reform through, he also secured London's orders that the governor in New Zealand must act on the advice of ministers. What had happened was that just before um, the previous government moved out, they put a number of conservatives in the Legislative Council to try and block Balance's reforms. Uh, Balance requested the governor to appoint a number of liberal members of the Legislative Council. The governor was a conservative and refused. Uh, Balance appealed to London and London came back and ordered the governor to act on the advice of his ministers. So that was very important to establish the supremacy of the House of Representatives. <coughs> and finally, and, and uh, most importantly for our purposes, Balance was committed to universal suffrage to the women's right to vote as well. But he did not live to see that enacted. Uh, he died of cancer in April of 1893, just as the uh, final petition of 32,000 women was being collected. <coughs> and it was left to his successors to oversee the enactment of that reform. And that's another story which, as I said, somebody else will be going into. So, <coughs> excuse me, I will leave it there. I hope I've, I've at least managed to show um, the relationship between institutions and the right to vote and also uh, the range of opinion and debate on these matters. So I'll leave it there and I hope that's been at least reasonably clear. Thank you. Certainly, very good. Thank you, Jim. Um, Randolph has asked, could someone pay for a minor's right, but not actually set up a claim? That is, get the right to vote and ally with particular minors uh, to be a person with, but be a person without a residence? No, as, as I understand it, if you had a minor's right, you had to use it. Um, so there, there was a, a dislike of that sort of speculation and blocking. And if a claim was abandoned, um, it could be um, 
jumped jumped or or formally taken over by someone else. Mm. Yeah, because you couldn't pass it on to somebody, could you? You no. had to re the person had to buy it. Yeah, yeah. And was the proof of evidence done at a courthouse? I can't remember that. Yeah, you you um to to get the right, you had to go to what was called the warden, the warden of the goldfields, who were quasi judicial officers, I guess. And in a civil sense, they were a bit like magistrates. And so the wardens were civil servants who, who had the responsibility of ensuring that the miners' rights were issued and that those who had them were genuine miners. And wardens also had the responsibility of adjudicating disputes and I think um, of um, licensing businesses and uh, keeping order on the goldfields as well. And wardens... Uh, had to enjoy the support of the miners, um, at least in practical terms, if not in, in, real, in, uh, in theory. So it, there's a sense in which the gold fields were an exercise in, in self-management. Okay, thank, thanks for that. The follow-on from that was, is there evidence of women or non-British, this person said non-white, but I think it's more non-British, trying to pass by purchasing a miner's right? Um, well, I, I, I speak subject to correction on this, but I presume that um, anyone um, could buy a miner's right and use it. There were plenty of Chinese miners on the gold field, uh, and I presume that they had the, that they were required to have a miner's right. Whether they were allowed to vote, I simply do not know. Um, that's a point to follow up. Yeah, I've put in the chat room a mm. link to Kay Lewis's website because I know she's quite in depth in this whole area of study. Good. So I'm hoping that might help people as well. Um, I'm aware that there was voting by some women in Victoria Yep. when they changed their legislation, I think that was 1866, and when they realised they'd made a mistake, they then specifically put gender in the new legislation. So I think yeah. the women voted for maybe a year or 18 months. But it wouldn't surprise me if women here who had claims would have been entitled to vote. And I, But I don't... And I'm sure if anybody knew it would be Kay would have a clue about that. Yeah. Um, and, and another question, Randolph's obviously deeply interested in this, this subject. Um, could Prof McLoon put the writer feminine, Femina in the same group <coughs> as the democratic influences such as Weld or followers of Burns? Absolutely. I, I'd put a, um, I don't think she was from as, as, uh, as upper class a background as well, but certainly she, she was one of the key democratic influences. Um, Mary Ann Mueller was her proper name, um, and uh, she was a very, very influential advocate for suffrage. Um, I don't want to trespass on, on that particular session too much, which is why I didn't say much about her. But yeah, she was well connected and um, I think corresponded with the great English liberal John Stuart Mill, who was also an advocate of women's suffrage. So yeah, definitely I put her in there. Yep. And, and Pauline, who's actually in Sydney, has asked, in 1879, while 91% of male were entitled to vote, to vote, did they actually vote? And if not, what do you know what percentage actually did? Turnout in the 1880s was, was um, at least in the high 70s, if not the 80s. Uh, I don't have the 
precise figures for all of them to hand, um, but the turnout in the 2014 general election was, I think, a bit below 80%, and 1887 was higher. Uh, so, in other words, the, the turnout in the 2014 election was the lowest in all the days of universal suffrage. There was, in other words, a reasonably high percentage of turnout, uh, at least from 1879. Yeah. And do you think in that time frame it's because the economy was changing so much that that 1887 figure you gave us, is that because by that stage there was such... Uh, financial hardship already that people were wanting to have a say and or was it more the politics of we're fed up with this mob we want another one um i think it was more constructive um hardship certainly had something to do with it but i think you know, it's a massive generalization um in the 1960s and 70s political scientists liked to describe new zealand as an intimate democracy um, to the extent that uh, you know, the famous stories that some of you will have heard uh, about um, Keith Holyoke's number being in the phone book and people ringing him about their plumbing problems or about the, the neighbour's dog barking. Uh, and there was an expectation that politicians would be responsive in that way. And I think that part of the culture goes back a long way. And I think uh, my, my generalisation would be that um, in, in much of the country... <clears throat> As early as the 1860s, 70s, 80s, there was a, a significant level of engagement with politics. Often it was pragmatic, you know, what's our Member of Parliament going to do for our district? Um, it said that um, a lot of politics was about roads and bridges and infrastructure and amenities. Um, the other point to make is that until 1889, uh, electorates were reasonably small. And so again, there was that intimacy. But I think there was just generally a, a culture of, of engagement, um, which, which is perhaps disappeared more in the last 40 years. But yeah, until, until then, and certainly in the time we're talking about, there was a culture of engagement, I think. Oh, thank you for and that. And also, poli political campaigning was entertaining, you know. Um, politi political meetings were fun. You could go and go and heckle, go and um, sing, sing rude songs if you didn't like the candidate. And Yeah, so it was theatre as well. Yes, that whole vaudeville thing that we just haven't embraced for probably 100 years, we haven't been down that kind of road. Mm, and mm. yet other democracies have maintained a level of town hall as that often get called, yeah, but we seem to have moved away from that. Well, I, I, think we, I think we still had it until the early 1980s. Um, yeah, I can remember even in an off year, 1980, um, the leader of the opposition could just about fill the, the big auditorium in the Christchurch Town Hall just for a political meeting. Yeah, and I remember when Bob Jones started the New Zealand Party and there was also similar kind of rallying around that personality rather maybe not so much the politics hmm. and in the mid 80s when was that 84 i think yeah, it might have yeah, been yeah 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 so i was living in hamilton then but funnily enough my husband ended up working for bob in the 80s so i got to meet him as well it was very interesting mixing the two characters yeah thank you very very much jim You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. You can find further information on our page at SoundCloud, 
or see the Auckland Library's website.